Hello, friends. Welcome back for another episode of the Wild User Interviews with me, AVB. Today, I am thrilled with our guest because it is the first of many. It is the first cyborg. It is the first privacy project. It is the first. You know, be just those two, but they're quite unique. So today I've got with me Oren from the QSTN network. QSTN is building a privacy layer on the newer network aiming to give control to users back over their data. And I believe there's a lot more that we'll be unpacking. Welcome, Oren. Thank you. Hello, hello. Thank you, Alejandro. Let me know if I got the introduction right. I'm ill-equipped when it comes to diversity and inclusion of cyborgs. I've never engaged with one in the past, to my knowledge. I suspect there's a few out there in the wild. There are. Everybody's a cyborg, so technically your friends and family are also part of the collective. I've got some pretty basic friends that are definitely humans, but <laughs> perhaps would be a good entry point to define how would you define a cyborg? A cyborg is basically a human with a mechanical or technological enhancement. So, you know, anybody with a smartphone would technically be a cyborg, anybody with an iPhone, with a computer, right? A computer is an external hard drive that allows us to process and, and store more information. So really anybody with technological advancements. I love the definition because it's very simple and in some ways it connects with the conversation I had with Pandu from Decentricity a few episodes back. She's got a vision of the future whereby technology and humans merge in such a way that we become interchangeable or they become a fundamental part of us. We become dependent on them or they can influence us in a direct way. And for her, that is a very strong call for decentralization because then the question mark is, well, who controls the data? And if they control the data that you rely on and that is part of you, they can therefore control you. So I think that's... I'm assuming that's where the privacy-centric approach comes for QSTN? Of course. It's really just about bringing control back to the users. We come from entertainment. As a cyborg, we also do music and we perform on national television. And so after building up this caricature and building up this platform to save the world from the incoming apocalypse, we realized that we're trying to save the world using tools and services that don't have the consumer in mind. It's okay, look, we have a quarter of a million followers on TikTok. But if tomorrow we get banned or if we get hacked, we lose all those followers. And again, it's not about the followers, but it's about the fact that we have to trust on the centralized system. And so we want to basically try and make the internet more equitable and, and more even distribution for people. And we believe crypto and blockchain are going to level the playing field for a lot of people. Look, I have to give you all the credit in the world because this interview is scheduled by the Flying Rhino team. So they're helping me get some guests on board. And I actually messaged Kate from the Flying Rhino like, you did not give me enough notice for this interview because as I started preparing, I realized that there is a lot to you and the work that you've done. Some of the things that come immediately to mind is I love the vision and the focus of a privacy-centric world and how to capture that back. And I think that even though we've known for years that privacy is a big issue, there's usually a barrier for getting to people to get the message across, to get them to care and to pay attention. And I think that as far as marketing and awareness goes, you have created an incredible platform for people that are not familiar with Oren. His YouTube channel has over, I think, 50,000 followers. You've got incredible music with very appealing visuals. I feel like I cheated doing the research because I basically just listened to your music for like half an hour. Thank you. You've got your own podcast series with high quality speakers such as Neil deGrasse Tyson. So I think that as far as awareness goes, and getting these 
niche area of technology, both privacy and cryptocurrencies, bringing that to the mainstream and making people care, making it relatable for them, something that they can tag along. I think you've done phenomenally well. Thank you. That's definitely the goal is I think with crypto, people are building a lot of crypto products for crypto users. And I think that's good and that's well, but I think the people in crypto are in crypto. They understand it and they get it. And it's about bridging the gap. It's about bringing more people who look and sound like us, whether it's people of color or people who identify as cyborgs or, or non-identifying people in general, bringing them into crypto and showing them, look, it's not scary. We might use this term non-fungible token, smart contract, but let's simplify that and let's figure out a space within this entire ecosystem where we can start you off and you can see maybe the overall value within blockchain and crypto and smart contracts. I definitely feel the conversations around like representation and role models and inclusion make a lot more sense when you start looking at like specific contexts. And it is certainly the case with crypto that I don't think they've alienated anyone based on like physical traits, but because it starts off so technical, unless you are at that technical level, it can be a little bit intimidating. That's why these tiny little podcasts compared to everything that you're doing aims to be almost more on the entertainment side. It's something that people can tune into weekly. Hopefully they'll get to know someone new or learn about a new project. But it is really something where we're trying to normalize the technology, normalize the use cases and control the narrative because there are some things being said out there that are not, they're not the best. Definitely. And we've been in crypto since 2016. So it's really been interesting People who previously were anti-crypto now saying that they put 10% of their portfolio in it and you can see how the times change. And again, as consumers, we need to sift through this and figure out what's the truth for us and, and what's going to work in our lives. Because again, governments and financial institutions, they have their own agendas, their own deadlines. And so there's a lot of exciting stuff out there and we need to sift through some of the rumors to see what's actually applicable. I always wonder how far back I want to go. I love learning about people's childhood and upbringing. I feel like especially people with a strong mission, it's not like they woke up and said, oh my God, there's money in crypto, I'm going to go for it. It is usually something that has been building up for a long time. So maybe we can start with, if you could paint me a picture of what the crypto scene was like in 2016, what you were doing at the time and how the two collided, because I know that that's when I got involved as well more heavily. I was finishing university back then and things have evolved a lot in a way that is super interesting and it leads to near eventually. So maybe we can start there. That's a good question. So we were also in university back in 2016. We were at NYU. Our friend told us about this cryptocurrency called Ethereum. We did a whole bunch of research into it and we were like, wow, like we need to invest. At the time, Ethereum was maybe about 90 bucks and we, and we bought a couple. And at the time, crypto, right now you have KYC, you have two-factor authentication, you have government verifying your credentials. It was just the wild west. They had ICOs. Now you have IDOs, still the same spirit, still the same mania, I think behind it and excitement, but just definitely less regulated. It looked less polished. There were less user-friendly ways to get into the space. And it was way harder to tell a scam. Now people usually have discords, even if they're lying about the numbers, they'll have a telegram. They have all these social indicators to let you know that they're building. And back in the day, it was really just like, at the promise of a coin and at the promise of what they said to do. It was hard to validate what people claim that they were trying to build with your money. So it was definitely a lot harder. Again, you had to sit through the month to see what was relevant. Luckily, we held on to our Ethereum that entire time and it's definitely paid off. And basically, we started uh, investing in 2016, 2017. 
2018, we have the crash. 2019, we're still in that crash. 2020, we have DeFi summer and we minted one of our first NFTs basically in 2019. And, and that NFT in 2020 sold for about one ETH, which was quite a bit of money. And, and that was when we realized, wow, like, seems like crypto's taken back up. Seems like people are really into these NFTs. And that was when we started to take a refocused look at cryptocurrencies after that year, after that gap. And that was what we learned about Mir, because as a cyborg, we did an NFT release for one of our mixtapes. And we decided to do it with Nier because we worked on Mintbase. And that was how we got into the Nier ecosystem. So it's been a journey. There's a very strong theme with all the early podcast guests of working with Mintbase. And I think that it just goes to show how fundamental Mintbase was for onboarding people. And I'm sure that in six months time, 12 months time, 18 months time, some of the guests will be onboarded by you or some of the newer community members. But yeah. First came the artists and they made it like amicable for everyone, open arms process. They took the time to teach from zero crypto to being a fully onboarded artist. And I think that is definitely yielding some results. I think that people that are dedicated to their craft were able to build in a way that was a bit more focused or maybe more isolated from some of the noise in the industry. Before we move on, I just want to share my experience in 2016. I bought into a more ideological side. Same. I was a little bit earlier than you. I remember I was at a co-working space in Melbourne, in Australia. And this guy, he arrived. I think he had a meeting with someone. Might have been consensus early day. They were exploring, expanding to Australia. He goes to the co-working space and he's like, buy Ethereum. Sell your car, sell your house, sell your shoes, buy Ethereum. And... I didn't quite listen and I thought I missed a pump from a 7 to 14. And he's like, dude, this is so early days. Don't even worry about it. So I think I started buying when it was like $28. Now, I was slightly less visionary than you. And I just started traveling the world, which was honestly one of the best experiences, especially considering that I spent two years uh, fully locked up uh, shortly after that. But yeah, the main thing that made it click for me was this smart contracts paper by Nick Zabo. It's a fascinating read. I'll link it in the show notes. I feel that anyone new to the crypto space, it's a really simple introduction. And by the way, he wrote this like way before crypto was a thing. And the best example that he gives is like a vending machine. The vending machine basically replaces men as intermediary or institutions. And it's got very simple programmable logic. Either you put money in and choose an item. If it's enough money, it gives you the item. It gives you change. Like you can't really move out of that scenario. And unless you physically smash the machine and steal stuff, which we discourage, it's a very nice example of how you can start to automate and program some of these logics. I had just graduated as a lawyer at the time, and I was just familiar with how complex trusts and, and corporate documents and contracts are. And I was like, there is so much that we could achieve efficiency-wise. In particular, my mind would immediately raise to, you know, developing countries where to just don't trust a local institution. So I could see the cycle of technology whereby the technology is developed anywhere in the world and then it supersedes the local restrictions to basically unleash people's power. And I was like, wow, if this technology could enable people to invest cross borders, to start businesses cross borders, to I could just see so much value being created in that way. So anyway, ICO boom was a bit of a mind-blowing experience for me because logic told me that it made no sense. But I could also see people in the same co-working space raising $30 million. 
and maybe I missed out. Who knows? Maybe I'd be in jail if I <laughs> if I had partaken into the ICO boom. But at some point, I dropped off because of the cost of Ethereum. I know that some people signed up to the Cardano vision back in the day because I guess they proposed that world of cheaper, more capacity. I think that six years later, we can agree that perhaps that is no longer a valid proposition. But yeah, I, I came across Nier as I was scrolling through the coin gecko rankings and I noticed it moving. And yeah, that's when I bought into it. That's pretty exciting. And thank you for sharing. That's super insightful. One thing stood out from the Nier experience though, there's no privacy. As in, it's a public chain. Exactly. But as opposed to a Z ZK Snarks or... Most chains are public, so yeah. Yes. So I think I was a very long way to bring us back to QSTN. I'm curious as to how the Mint-based team was able to sell near to you or what clicked at the time. Because I know that there is a lot of competition as far as L2s and other blockchains go. So I'd love to know first what you studied at NYU and then what made it click for near. So at NYU, we studied marketing. And when you take marketing, you take financial accounting, you take information technology, you take an environmental class to understand how to open a business in a foreign country. You take the entire business curriculum. So business with a specialized degree in marketing. And again, that kind of helped with the music and the entertainment aspect and creating the cyborg caricature. And then with Mintbase, what sold me was that basically I spoke to Mintbase, Mintable, Rarible, and OpenSea. And First of all, Mintbase's team just felt like they knew the most about their technology. And so they could really easily communicate it. Also, on a human-to-human -human level, they, I feel like, especially with the success of Ethereum and especially at the time, the success of NFTs, they felt the most level-headed. And I could just speak to them just really, again, about the code. It wasn't about the exciting people that they've gotten on their platform. It was really like, look, this is what we offer. This is the technology. And so from a tech stack, they explained, look, Near is proof of stake. Bitcoin is proof of work and so is Ethereum. And so Ethereum is trying to migrate to proof of stake. And so because of that, Near can claim that it's climate neutral and they're South Pole certified. On top of that, NFTs are tokens. And so when you have royalties or metadata, it's engraved in the token on Near. When you have one on Ethereum, so let's say we have we mint an NFT on Ethereum and it's minted in Rarible, those basically the metadata and the royalties are only platform specific. So if I take this NFT from Rarible to OpenSea and I put a 10% royalty on Rarible, it will not appear in OpenSea. On Near, if I take it from Mintbase to Paris, that royalty will still be there. So they basically explain that, look, the tech is better, we're better for the environment, and we're willing to invest in your belief and your vision. As a cyborg, we were releasing the Mutant Project. Mutant is about the aliens that abducted us and took us into space and, and created this half-human, half-machine hybrid. And so they not only wanted to invest in it, but they helped us to build a crypto voxel world. And so we eventually bought land in the metaverse personally because of the event that we threw with Mintbase. And so they rented out a space. We ended up meeting Vandal from, from Vandal. And it just put us into this whole world. And we saw the world of Nier. We saw their NFT ecosystems and we saw the benefits to it. And, and it truly was an amazing release. We had thousands of people come out. And because of that, they then had us perform at a, a festival in Berlin. And then because of that festival in Berlin, we ended up coming out to NearCon, which is where we got this hoodie. So it, it, it was great. And a last point on this, when we were trying to decide what NFT platform to work with, we spoke with our team and 
obviously MintBase had the better tech and just made us feel better. So that was already where we were leaning. But we also realized that just like MintBase, Near is a budding ecosystem and that we wanted to put that investment in that ecosystem. And as you can tell, it paid off and it, it feels like the right place to be for a lot of different reasons. And so we're happy that we had that initial contact with MintBase. I'm really curious from all the early success that you have had, especially on the artistic side, how much of that audience and traction you already had as an artist and within your artistic networks, and it was easier to channel them into Near. And how much of it do you feel that the Near ecosystem is, you know, giving you f f from both angles? So to be honest with you, because uh, Question, our platform hasn't officially launched. We're going to open up Testnet for the initial users in April, let's say early May, the latest. All of the traction that we have on Question is because of the Near protocol community and the ecosystem of DAOs. I personally have not even really promoted question from my entertainment side. And that's because I'm getting my audience ready. I don't want to just throw them and say, hey, go start getting paid for your data and privacy. Again, I want to hold their hands. I want to show them that I've been in crypto as they know with my NFT releases. I want to start better interweaving this into my brand before I dump this platform on them. But right now, all of the growth, we have almost 700 followers on Twitter, 100 on Instagram. It's all been from the Near ecosystem. And whenever we have our pitch deck, whenever we talk about the benefits of Near, we always talk about the community being a great system of support for launching. Actually, you are the perfect guest to try to decipher these because you've got the artistic side and you've got the, I guess, like technical project through QSDN. And the reason why I'm asking is because there's this famous saying, may have been Abraham Lincoln, he says, it's not what your country can do for you, it's what you can do for your country. And I feel that at the moment, because there's a lot of competition for blockchains, there it's a bit of a catch-22. I don't think, I'm not a maxi either side. I do feel like the near ecosystem and the community has a lot to give and the near technical stack enables people in very powerful ways. But I also think I'd love to put the ball on people's side of the court and be like, what are you bringing to the table? Do you have a product? Do you have an idea? Do you have an existing audience? Quality seeds would grow everywhere. In fact, the lesson from Ethereum is you will grow until the soil dries out and you don't want to be in a place where your environment is impairing your growth. So I guess it's a fascinating journey for me to follow what you've done on the artistic side to start with an early days with Mintbase and then obviously how that transitions into Nier. Because my theory, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you have an existing and growing audience on the artistic side along with that world that Mintbase has connected with and that Nier has had the ability to basically channel those existing audiences or I guess onboard what would be everyday people or people that come into the ecosystem through the music or through the art. And I guess to me, that is a big test of usability and accessibility of the network itself. Exactly. I think Nier, another reason why we decided to not only build on Nier, but release our NFT ecosystem on Nier is really just the fact that they, they saw the problems with Ethereum. They saw the problems with Bitcoin and its mass adoption. And, and Nier basically was like, look, okay, if people are tired of the, the hash phrases for, or the, or the hash phrases for your address, let's create near name so that people have easily readable wallet names. And I think near as a blockchain is consumer friendly. And so it's the perfect place to try and create products that are going to help web two into web three. And that's the goal with question is to bring web two users into web three. 
again, I'm an artist. I come from a background as a cyborg in entertainment. And so for me, it's again, we can make crypto products for crypto people, but we need to bring the average person into it. If my sister or my mother can't sign up to question and understand what they're doing and feel like they're part of the ecosystem, then I feel like I failed. Because I think that again, for crypto to go to that point of 10x, 20x, we need to get the average person in there. And I think right now that's the barriers to entry. And I think near as a protocol addresses some of that. And then we need specific applications that are going to even be accelerating that adoption. And, and I hope that question will be one of those gateways for consumer adoption. Yeah, I've always, I like coming up with frameworks and my framework is, there's like different levels in crypto that you can rank projects in. Some rank really well in awareness. So for instance, everyone has heard of Cardano, even if you have absolutely no idea what it stands for or what stage of development it is, they've got good uh, branding. They've, they've crossed the chasm into the mainstream. That obviously it's a very good position to be in as we move on to the next stage, which is the pricing level, or I guess people coming in as investors. They hear of the brand and they say, oh my God, because everyone knows about it or it is often covered elsewhere, whatever. There's a bunch of YouTubers shilling. It must be the next big thing. And they put money in it, just trying to position themselves almost like an angel investor. The early day, hopefully it's a bet that pays off in the long term. Now the next stage is adoption. People that have actually used these net. And I love it because here's where you start to have a gap, right? This is where the roads start to diverge in very meaningful ways. And not to shit on anyone, but I always like to give people the example of, say, a Solana or an Avalanche or a Phantom. These are names that have very good branding recognition. Over the last year, they have built very strong presence, at least. But when you actually use them, you realize that every blockchain has trade-offs. There are compromises. and for all their merits, and there are some pretty solid technical innovations, the one thing that always gets to me is it's shit user experience. If I have to spend hours doing research to understand which wallet to use and how to use a bridge, dude, Avalanche, most people don't even know that there is an Avalanche mainnet and a C chain, which is an EVM. I spoke with a guy who's an Avalanche investor eight months ago, and he didn't know that there were two separate ones. <laughs> you didn't know that, didn't you? Well, there you go. So... If you are in doubt, if you use Avalanche with zero X addresses, that's the EVM side. So anyway, all that is to say that Nier starts scoring really well on that user experience side. And I guess people will increasingly realize that as they use Nier. So I like that we're not building for the existing audience, which is used to friction. We're pushing the boundaries for a new audience that has never used crypto because it is unusable for them. Now the next mile, and this is where the giants rise and shine and is building on a blockchain. Dang it. I'd love to hear your experience, but beyond the marketing, beyond aping into a coin, beyond trying to use it as an everyday user, trying to actually develop things. Because you and I have been around since 2016, people sell you pipe dreams. There's all sorts of vision. Is it utopian? Is it dystopian? Are we cyborgs? Are we, you name it. The real challenge is actually building things and understanding, okay, what are the advantages and the, the constraints, the design or architecture trade-offs of actually building? 
I know that I've been keenly aware of some of the architecture limitations and advances in the near ecosystem, indexers, RPC nodes. I've been learning on the go, but they're like the reality check. And I think that on that front, from what I've heard, especially from people that have built, that have participated in both Solana hackathons and near hackathons, the dev tooling in near, it's meant to be like above and beyond. So not only are they catering for really good user experience, but the developer experience is really good. And that's massive because if you want to attract talent, the easier it is for them to transition and the more enjoyable, as silly as it may sound, it is for them to do the job. I think it makes a huge difference. So maybe I'd love to get some insights uh, from you and your team on that. Yeah. So right now we have a team of about three developers, Eugene, Boren, and Lafi. And Boren and Lafi actually come from Solana. And as Solana also uses Rust. And so they, as they transition into the near ecosystem, some of the things that are missing in Solana for the developer tools is available with near. And so honestly, they're loving the, the transitive nature of some of this stuff and switching over to near because they're like, it's easy for us. Like they have this for us. This is already publicly available. We have this. And if it's not, we've already built it for Solana. So they love basically the near ecosystem. Eugene, whenever he has a question, he's in the near discord or in the telegram asking people, getting feedback. And so near definitely we're learning about the blockchain every day. We're trying to problem solve. We're trying to say, look, from a user, this is how a user might use it, but how would a hacker try to maliciously affect us? And so there's a lot of different headspaces that you need to be in as you're building a product. Me as the blockchain architect and the founder, I'm like, okay, I want everybody to have this. And they're like, okay, if everybody had that, then everybody could also get hacked. So we, we have to find a middle ground. And so it's constantly about just reigning in reality and figuring out what that'll look like in actuality and seeing how it's going to affect the user. And whether there's, again, it's a bunch of trade-offs really, and just figuring out what's the best product and what's the best overall vision. I basically incorporated question back in 2020. And so for all of 2021, I did incubators and I was planning to open question by January, 2022. And I was planning to do it by March, 2022. And now we're looking at May, 2022. And that's because of the fact that we're trying to really make the best product. Eventually we're going to create a token. And, and again, there's, there's a whole bunch of like financial incentives, but for us, it's not about the money. It's about making a genuinely good product. Like I am a crypto enthusiast, right? Like I love crypto as much as I love hip hop, because just like hip hop, you have a world economy and you have different little markets and niches within that. And these markets and niches are affected by environmental location, geographical, and the same with crypto, right? Near foundation is in Switzerland. And because of that, it affects the way that they govern the overall product, you know, so you can have this very like granular sense of collectability and, and fandom behind crypto, just like you can behind hip hop. And so our goal is to really create a product that can get the first time user into crypto. You get some of our virtual credit, which will eventually be a token. And then you can buy, start buying some NFTs. And then from there, you can start understanding what these words are about. Okay, token. Okay, I have a couple tokens because I've answered some questions. And using those tokens, I've now purchased some NFTs. And so now users have a very general baseline understanding of these principles. And maybe now they'll go actually go buy some near and start swapping on ref finance and now buying on Paris, right? Like we want to be that, that initial doorway to get people into the space. Really briefly, I am on a quest to get more people that have migrated from any blockchain, really, including Web2, but specifically from Solana to document their journey. I think we need more people talking about it to demystify changing blockchains to learn what are the differences. 
I'm actually in the process of crafting the scope for a challenge that we want to submit to 1729. I'm thinking about potentially uh, through, through the marketing app, put a bounty. So the prize money for 1729 and have people create content comparing the sharding differences near with other sharded blockchains, Zilliqa, ETH 2.0, whatever, or maybe even bridges. The Rainbow Bridge really stands apart from other bridging technologies. These are conversations that we really need to have. And I feel strongly about it because for years we've been talking about the theory and as these blockchains go alive, we really need to drill the point home that not all blockchains are the same. You may be able to buy all the coins from the same centralized exchange and all the wallets may have similar UI, UX because we've got very strong mimetic energies in the industry. Exactly. But the reality is under the hood, completely different. And that really matters long-term. Now, moving on to QSTN, which I just realized I may have been mispronouncing it all along. You pronounce that question. If people are confused, we've been using them interchangeably throughout the interview. So moving on to question, assuming that I know nothing because I've done my research as a responsible host, but <laughs> people listening would be or are likely to be completely new to the theme. How would you describe it to a five-year-old, I guess, like an elevator pitch? And maybe if you can just start walking me through like maybe those early customer journeys, like how do you envision people entering the ecosystem and using the platform? Mm -hmm. So question is basically a blockchain enabled market research portal. And TLDR, you join our platform, you answer five questions a day, we pay you in our virtual credit, and then you can basically use these virtual credits to buy NFTs and other digital goods within our ecosystem. Where do the five questions come from? So we basically are working with the data analysts to generate questions over a year calendar period. And we also work with sponsors who sometimes slip their own questions in and we charge them a fee to be able to ask you guys questions. And right now, the type of information that we're going to be asking you is your crypto purchasing and buying habits. So today, do you prefer Dogecoin or do you prefer Bitcoin? On average, when you make purchases of Near, is it between this range and this range or this range? Right now, the crypto market is about $2.2 trillion. We assume that number is only going to increase. And there are a lot of institutions that wish to get into the crypto space and understanding people's purchasing, buying habits and preferences to eventually begin targeting that audience. And if I understand correctly, the privacy component would be that you want to preserve people's identity and their preferences. So I'm guessing that all this information is being shared in like a silo layered within question. Exactly. And so there's kind of two ways that we're addressing the privacy. So the first is that you can basically answer the five questions daily, but anonymously. And so if you answer the five questions daily anonymously, we're going to have to pay you at a lower rate because we can't verify the authenticity of what you're saying, but you can still get paid for your data as an anonymous profile. And so we've integrated near names, which is basically a feature offered by Ceramic, which allows people to have multiple near wallets and then connect a different near wallet, depending on the pseudonym or the alias that they want to perform under that platform as. So that's the first type of privacy enabled feature. And then the second is that as you answer questions, we're going to be storing that information and encrypting it and then removing the personal information and scraping it. And the third piece of information is that we're currently going to be working with Verita. We're still trying to figure out the mechanisms of our partnership, but ideally by working with Verita, we'll also be able to, our corporate sponsors who want information, they'll be able to make specific requests and then you can approve those requests and you'll have a messaging channel to be paid for the additional information that people are requesting. 
And so just making sure that you have the option to participate in our system publicly or privately, you have the guarantee that any of this information will never link back to you and you specifically. And then also any additional requests for personal information will be authorized by you as well as verified on train. And the biggest innovation that we think question offers, even though it's not that crazy, is basically every time you answer a question, you basically have a chance to create an on-chain receipt. And so that way, instead of having to trust, okay, I've answered 25 questions, question owes me 25 answer tokens. It's okay, I have five receipts. On those five receipts, it shows that I'm owed five answer credits. And so now I have an immutable record of my data contributions on chain. Again, the information is not on chain, but just proof that you took those actions is on chain. And that's, again, a step in the right direction where people don't have to trust the centralized system and their accounting for proof of actions that they took. I've got a few questions. So maybe really quickly before we jump into those, this is going to put my ADD to the test. You've mentioned two very valuable and powerful partners in the ecosystem, Ceramic and Verita. So maybe if you could just give a yeah two sentence introduction of what each one of those use, and hopefully this may be useful for other people looking for infrastructure for their own projects or just adding to their pile of knowledge in their brain. Of course. So Ceramic is a decentralized identity solution and you're able to create data solutions and workflows. And so what we're doing is using Ceramic, we're allowing users to have multiple near wallets and aliases so that if they want to interact with our system anonymously, they can basically create another near wallet and then interact with our system under a different name. So if you're Alejandro, you could now be Robin. And even though Alejandro has Alejandro.near and Robin.near under question, they can perform under Robin. So as far as the user experience goes, that would basically enable to have a master profile with all your pseudonymous identities so that without having to log out of question, you can swap between identities, I'm guessing within a dashboard, and then seamlessly have different interactions with different content. Exactly. And you have a That's brilliant. profile picture, you have a different bio, and again, a different wallet, depending on what platform you're engaging with and which one you're signed into. Exactly. Brilliant. I think the only other platform that I've seen manage multiple wallets, because that is something that has to be acknowledged. Most people have multiple wallets, is Paras. And I actually gave that feedback to Paras back in the day because when they introduced the email feature, which is great because you could be notified when someone makes an offer or a card or whatever, I was trying to associate multiple wallets to the same email and it wouldn't take it. And I was like, hey guys, as a rule of thumb, people are going to have a lot more wallets than email addresses. Like, please make it simple and link it all together. So I'm really excited to hear that Ceramic has a functionality and that you guys were able to use it. Ceramic announced a partnership with Near a while ago. And I know that there were incentives for builders, grants, and technical assistance. I'm not sure if those are still available, but Ceramic is certainly a good option to consider if you're looking at centralized storage and data management. And then our last partner is Verita. And Verita, again, is another decentralized identity solution, but they cover a wide range of scope of things. So first they help with encrypted data storage. And not only do they help with encrypted data storage, but they can store data in different places that are compliant with the user and with the overall platform governance, which again, sounds boring, but that's really important, right? If a platform like Question we're storing user one, two, and three, each user might have different compliance to store their information. And so Verita can allow us to store this information in a compliant way based on your geographical location, as well as creating a message portal 
where people can make requests for specific information and then be paid for that information and then have a messaging portal to conduct the payments through. And so they're basically creating data monetization infrastructure and tools. And so we're basically piecemealing what we need and what we want to work on with them. We're part of their early adopter program. They've been very communicative in the sandbox, allowing us to test, allowing us to also get a preview at their upcoming mobile wallet. So we might be integrating their wallet. There's a lot that Verita offers and their team is very common. I came across the Verita team a while ago because they're based in Australia and we've got a very small near Australia Telegram channel that I'm sure will be growing by lips and bounds very soon. And Verita is one of those projects that are very ambitious, but because I would almost put them in the core infrastructure layer, like they're a building block for people to leverage. Sometimes it can be a little bit hard to really understand the potential of it in an abstract sense. So I'm really happy to see that you guys connected and that you're able to leverage an infrastructure. I've been following intermittently some of their blog posts and I'm very excited to see that they are close to production, it seems, or they're in mainnet already. Yes, they're not on near mainnet yet. I believe they're on ETH and they're going to, you know. Awesome. I'm going to have to have them on the podcast soon. Definitely. I know Chris will love that. <laughs> I know that as you're saying this, I've got a bit of a serial entrepreneur in me, like kicking and, and shouting at the wind. And for a long time, I struggled because I don't know if you've heard this crazy story, but developers are in very high demand. <laughs> And they're very expensive. So for people with ideas, it's hard. Around 2018, I got around the no-code movement and it was like a first breath of fresh air because now you were able to at least test ideas and have MVPs, low cost, and you can start tweaking. And I even learned a lot about the technology stacks, which led me to learn the most basic Python. But what I love is it. In some ways, I may be beating my time as well with a podcast and the YouTube and advising some teams early on because I see all these composable pieces coming together in the near ecosystem. Just a few podcasts ago, we had Ross Gates from Prime Lab working on reusable elements. Near Inc. has now renamed into Pagoda, which is a Web3 studio. We've got a lot of teams that are just outright open source, so you can just mix and match, but also a lot of teams building infrastructure that can be leveraged. So what I'm wondering is, as I hear you explain question and the way that you're leveraging for Verida, I think there is a massive use case for basically offering question as a platform to enable anyone to conduct market research. I don't know how much thought you've given to it. I would be more than happy to share my personal views because this is an area where I have two projects actually that I've been, been lurking in my mind for a while, but I'll let you run with it first. No, that's a perfect question and a perfect segue. Super excited to talk about this. So as the founder of this company, it's a million moving pieces and you have to learn to pivot. You have to learn to be flexible. You have to learn to be resilient and you have to learn to constantly take in new information. Again, you don't need to scrap everything, but you also need to be willing to see what's going to stay and what is. And as we're finishing the user experience, we are working on a business side. And so I'll explain to you again, the overarching experience. So as a user, you sign in with your Twitter account, you can sign in with some sort of centralized application or just with your near wallet. And then you go and do an onboarding phase. During the onboarding phase, we ask you 10 questions. At the end of those 10 questions, you earn some points. So literally, as soon as you sign in for question, 
You start answering some questions, we pay you for those questions, and then we prompt you to go to the NFT store to start purchasing. And then we say, look, come back every day, we'll keep asking you questions, and we'll keep populating the NFT store with different goods, and that's the user experience. On the business side, and this will either be a subscription model, we're assuming, but basically what we're allowing businesses to do is to purchase a subscription from us, and then they can create their own questionnaire portal with five different types of questions, multiple choice, short answer, poll, rating, survey. And then they can send out this questionnaire to different people on the internet using their email addresses. And then they can then track the responses and pay them at a baseline rate that we've set for the user and the business side. And as long as you hold our native token, when we turn it into a token, or you have a subscription, you have access to the portal, you can ask questions, and you can pay people in our currency at a predefined rate that we set up. And then we're also going to allow users to basically fund a wallet. So let's say you have 100 participants. You don't want to pay them one answer per question. You want to pay them in near. In addition, we'll have a wallet which you'll be able to fund and then mathematically divide or dispense evenly among the participants. And so we are creating a business version. What I'm wondering is, one is a factual question and the other one it's we'll put our brains to work. The first one would be, how many data points do you have on people? So assuming it is all anonymous or you can like de-anonymize, do you know age, gender, income, like how much contextual information there is for the answers provided? So again, we're not open, so we're still figuring out this workflow, but the way that it works is basically we can collect as much and however much information we want or need to. So the data points, there's no limit to it. But the problem is that in terms of a compliancy effort, we would never want to be exposed directly and then to expose you. And so we can collect as many data points. It's about how these data points are put together in a way that could lead back to you. So ideally, we want as many data points as we can get without having them directly say who you are. So again, if we do have your name and we have, let's say if we have your name and your age and your sex, then we would want to remove your name. We would want to remove your location. So we would want to keep the fact that this person might be a male. They might live in Australia, but they're between the ages of 20 to 40. They're generally a first-time yeah. crypto user. Yeah, I'm, I'm not an analytics expert, but I know that over time, Facebook, and I'm assuming all the social media, they actually had to make changes to make the analytics insights, especially the ad targeting, much more generic. So for instance, you can't target ads for less than 200 people or something, or less than 50 people. Because people were getting really granular. Okay, my ex lives in this location, age, career. Like you literally just showed something like to one person. So I think that now I'm looking at my YouTube analytics, it basically on one side shows you your audience demographics, and then on a different side, it shows you your video performance, but you don't really, you're not able to match to the individual, like who saw which video for how long. That's not, that would be a privacy breach and that would probably drive me crazy, isn't it? Because <laughs> <laughs> the reason why I'm asking is obviously the more insights you have about the respondents of the questionnaires, the more valuable. And one of the use cases that I'm thinking is around polling. So I think it's been very topical with the last few years that political polls are a wild card at best. <laughs> they have predicted nothing close to actual outcomes, which is a problem for many reasons, including I think in a healthy political system, we should have ways to provide feedback along the way. So if there are proposed laws, proposed changes, anything of importance, 
people should be able to express how they feel about it. He expressed on chain as well, just so we know that person said that and somebody didn't change the ballot later, right? Yeah, there's many different configurations around it, but I think that at a very basic level, when you think of politics, we have elections every, what, three, four or five years. And the argument has always been that we basically have a systems of laws and governance, which has been restricted by the technology that we have available. Running an election costs whatever, hundreds of millions and then securing it and this and that. So I think that it would be natural to think that as the technology advances, maybe we're not going to change our entire system because those things evolve slowly for many reasons, but maybe we can change the ways in which we communicate with each other. It's happening at a, it's called an, at an electorate level amongst us. And I think that tech-savvy politicians are able to interact with people without going too far. Like Elon Musk just acquired 9.2% of Twitter. And it's fascinating that before his acquisition, he basically owned Twitter already, just in terms of like engagement. And I think that's going to be more pronounced in the future. So I think for sensible areas, such as political preferences, especially on topics that may change, if you're polled today in six months' time and in 12 months' time, Normal people with an open mind that may, they should revise their positions as new information comes in or as their preferences change. So I think that political polling would be an interesting use case whereby you'd want to increase the speed of feedback or information to hopefully inform better decision making without exposing people to their preferences. Because mm -hmm. that leads me to my second idea, which I'm going to keep very vague which is around preference falsification. It's a fascinating concept. I'm trying to remember, may have been Naval or Balaji, mm -hmm. one of those. I listened to it in a podcast. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the, the preference falsification concept is fascinating. Basically, people lie. <laughs> People's publicly stated preferences are heavily influenced by why they think the other person wants to listen to or by acceptance. But when they get the chance to actually choose, it's a different story. So I think that you could greatly mitigate preference falsification by having an anonymous system. Completely agree. And that's the goal with this is to basically try and figure out ways to get people to want to give daily information and then figuring out even more incentivizing ways to get them to be truthful and to get them to be honest. And that's part of the game. That's part of also part of the reason why it's taking so long to do this, because it's like, okay, if somebody is lying, how do we know that? How do we create an internal checks and balances and that they're lying? And so it's also part of the fun is figuring that out. And so we've figured out a couple of solutions to figure out how to tell if somebody's being a bad participant, how to tell if somebody's spamming, how to communicate that to them. How many warnings do they get? What are you going to say? I've got the craziest story. So a while back, I saw on Twitter, TED, you know, the, the talks. So the TED organization shared that they were doing some anonymous research. And that if people wanted to, they could enter. All they had to do was answer some surveys. I think it was every, could have been six weeks, eight weeks, whatever. It just got in my inbox and I answered some survey. And they didn't tell you what it was for until the end. So for months, I'm answering these surveys. And by the way, this is during like COVID, like peak COVID. So I'm in lockdown. And there were questions around happiness, fulfillment, stress levels. So I thought it must have been connected to... Maybe it was like pandemic health related, or maybe it was around whatever. I had some theories and they ask you at the end of each survey, what do you think this is for? When they finally disclose what the thing was for, I couldn't believe it. You know, the things that we got a very generous grant from a contributor and we wanted to measure the effects of money on ha people's happiness and sense of purpose and fulfillment. 
So we gave half the participants $10,000 each to spend any way they want. And the other half, we gave fuck all, but we gave both the same questions. And I was like, are you trying to tell me that I got 50 bucks? <laughs> I got a 50 bucks gift card and someone else got $10,000. And look, to be honest, I would have to look in more detail into the way that the study was construed, but I don't think you can actually compare to pairs, you know, how much $10,000 would have affected my happiness either way. If they want to conduct a study again, I'll take the $10,000. And I can tell you, especially during the time in COVID, $10,000 would have made a huge difference. But yeah, that was a side note. Did they ever give you back the results of how that money affected people versus those without? Did they ever give you a synopsis? I believe there was, a, was an in-depth result with different criteria. What I did hear in the email announcing the results was that overwhelmingly people that received the $10,000 spent a very high percentage of it on other people. They would buy presents for family, for friends. And once again, like how can we index for the fact that at the time, a lot of people were out of work and at the time, a lot of people were isolated. So maybe you try to connect with people by, by something online. I'll actually try to dig that report and both share it with you in the footnotes if people are interested in digging down. But if anyone has doubts, I have doubts actually, send me $10,000. My wallet is alejandro.near. We'll figure this shit out straight away. <laughs> now, this is a very odd way to ask, do you think that paying people is required for the system to work? People need incentive, so it doesn't need to be financial payment. It could be social payment, right? Like people buy, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on board apes, not because it's always the most profitable, but because they want to socially identify and they get paid back in the social identification that people then see within them. I think incentive can take different forms. Again, we're going to be offering you virtual credits, which will eventually be a token. We're going to be offering you NFTs. We're going to be offering you discounts and promo codes, testing and seeing what gets people to move. It might be the promise of tokens. It might be NFTs. It might be something else that we haven't thought of yet and seeing what's going to spin the needle. But it definitely is, there needs to be incentive because everybody right now is time versus money. Everybody right now is more conscious of their income. They're more conscious of the fact we have a lot of shifts going on and there's uncertainty. And so just letting people know that there is some sort of given or constant for something that they're giving you, I think it will help with the aggregation. Have you read Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow? It's a fascinating early work on behavioral design. Psychology. Some of it has been challenged and disproven, but overall, it, it's really interesting to see how people think and react in different circumstances with different, different parameters. I would highly recommend the book, 21 Interesting Behavioral Design. Some of the things that stand out to me, actually, and you may know this because you've studied marketing, is that a lot of the things that we're understanding a lot better now in that scientific literature, we've known for about 80 years in marketing. Like the way in which we can affect people's unconscious, and the way that you can suggest things like recency bias, heuristics. There's a lot of concepts there that we've taken advantage of for decades in a commercial sense. And only now we're starting to document in a scientific sense. And there is a study in the book, which I found fascinating around, I think it was a preschool or a primary school in Israel. 
and they had an issue with parents being late to pick up their kids or some parents. So they tried to discourage people being late to pick up their kids by charging them a fee. And in a fascinating way, it actually had the opposite effect. So people basically saw the fee as, fuck it, I'm paying for daycare. <laughs> and because they had to pay the fee, more kids were staying for longer. It was basically seen as a value-added service. And a more recent example, which has not been studied, but if there's any behavioral scientists out there, maybe look into it. Costa Rica, I think there's some situation going on. Costa Rica gives you a one-month tourist visa when you get in which is very short, like I'm in Mexico now and they give you six months. But the way that it works in Costa Rica is that if you overstay, you pay a fine, which is about a hundred bucks a month. And as it happens, most Americans and most Europeans grossly overstay and they basically just pay the fine on the way out. I think it is a convenient financial arrangement for both parties. The Costa Rican government is getting way more money than they would from visas, which most people don't have to apply. And if they do, it's two, 300 bucks an application. And for the people that stay for longer, I guess they just pay to stay basically. So it's interesting to see how, depending on how you structure these incentives or punishments, they can actually change people's behaviors. So often some of the concerns around paying for people for data is that if you really want the cash, you'll make the data may be low quality. You may create fake accounts. Conversely, if somebody really wants to give you the data, they don't really want or care about the money, especially how much money can you offer, really? So I'm thinking that something that would be interesting for you guys to take into account that I think could be a very strong driver for people would be a course or a mission. Like, for instance, as an example, let's say it's an election year and there is a platform that is set out to have more transparent, privacy-preserving polling so that we can have more informed discourse. We don't want to be attacking each other. We don't want to be demonizing people for their preferences. We just want to know where things are at. You can structure it any way that you want. Maybe people submit questions, they vote on the question, gets put to the public. It doesn't really matter the structure of it. I think that the mission of having better discourse between people and informing politicians' platforms is something that probably a good chunk of people could rally behind. Thank you. And as far as mission goes, you can really choose anything. Different demographics would care about different things. Thank you. That's definitely a very good point. And something that I thought you were going to say, but you didn't, that I'm surprised is using question for DAOs, for, for DAO governance and getting feedback. Because that's another part of polling is that you have these decentralized bodies you have sometimes five to hundreds or thousands of people in them. And a problem is getting people to vote. You might have a thousand people in the DAO, but only three people vote. And that ends up being the consensus model. And so using question as another form of incentive to get people to actually participate in the governance as well. So polling is right there next to that. So I was about to mention DAOs. So I'm still going to send you my, my invoice, <laughs> advisor fees. Yeah, I think that was a very interesting one. Some people would argue that the privacy layer for polling may go against the DAO ethos. Some people, more pragmatic, and I may side with them in some circumstances, would argue that maybe it's the opposite. Maybe the reason why we don't have more DAO participation is because we don't want everything to be public. Like, I I'm currently sitting on the marketing DAO. We have public discussions on the forum. Nothing is hidden. 
But sometimes there are things that you want to abstain from or vote against, or maybe even whatever the case may be. I just don't think that everything has to be public. Once again, you got to think about incentives and deterrence. If someone is worried about their personal reputation and their personal career profession moving forward, that 100% affects your voting behavior. That's why crypto is fascinating because you've got a bunch of rogue agents more on the libertarian side, which is probably the best demographics to start with. But if we want to take this to mass adoption, we have to start thinking about what the everyday person wants. Everyday people do not want to be at the center of attention. They do not want to be piled on in social media for a decision they took on the blockchain 14 years ago. Exactly. So I think that the privacy layer is fundamental to enable more use cases while preserving the decentralization aspect. Exactly. And just giving people the option, that's really what question is about. So we are, we previously took an incubator that was run by GitHub and it's called Gitcoin. And what they told us was that in the class, code is not supposed to force you to go left or force you to go right. It's supposed to let you know that you can go left and you can go right. And you know what right entails and you know what left entails and you yourself then decide between the trade-offs what's best for you. And so that's the goal of question is to give people that choice. Look, if we want to earn anonymously, we can. If we want to earn publicly, we can. And giving people this choice and not making them feel like they have to. And just making it as easy and as user-friendly along the way and trying to teach them. Everybody talks about universal basic income. Where are we going to get more money from? We're going to keep inflating money within the supply, but decreasing the value of the dollar. And it's, look, we all generate valuable assets and information every day. Let's begin to monetize this. And it's like, why should I care? It's because, look, if you can earn an extra anything just for a little bit of your time, why not? Especially with, you know, you compare time versus effort when it's a couple questions on your phone, this is those steps to start getting that universal basic income, to start bringing in money and we don't have to deflate the value of the dollar. We can just take something that's already there that we've been trained not to care about. And that's also part of the, the value mission of this is that we can't just pay people for their data. We have to teach people why their data is important. So that anytime they get a survey, they get a questionnaire, they go, question pays me for this. Why would I just do this for free? And if we can start to get more people thinking like that, we'll realize that we give up our rights in a lot of different places besides just our data. But at least with our data, we can start to bring some of that value back to the consumer. I think you're to close the loop. I have always been a fan. Some people may say I've got an unhealthy obsession with uh, frequent flyer programs to the point that when I go to a cafe and they give you a little, I don't know if you have this in New York, maybe it's a bit old school in Melbourne, but. They give you the little card, uh, the loyalty card, you know, mm. they stamp. I call that frequent fire coffee. I think I've lost friendships for my stupidity calling it frequent fire coffee. But anyway, what I like about the frequent fire model is that it is very well thought out. They sell these points. So if you use a credit card and a credit card gives you points, the bank bought the points from the airline. It doesn't matter whether you use them or not. The airline sold the points. Whoever is giving it to you, those points were paid for. And most people, they expired. But what's interesting is that for most people, myself included, I don't see the economic value of the points. And I guess that one day I'll redeem them if I have them. The exciting thing about the points, and once again, it really comes down to user behavior and psychology, is the sense of progression, you know, status. There's something in the human brain that we like to see the little bar progressing, numbers ticking up. 
I don't know what it is. Someone probably has a good explanation about it, but I think that's where gamification becomes extremely powerful. And once again, in the same way that marketing has been leveraging using behavior for decades, I feel like the gaming industry is miles ahead of everyone else. And this gamification concepts are slowly tricking over to other industries. So I think that another interesting area to explore would be how could the platform be gamified in such a way that perhaps the amount of money that you can generate is not meaningful or it's not what you're after, but you can be given that status and recognition. Say something really powerful is streak. You don't want to lose your streak. Mm -hmm. If you answer questions every day, it starts building up. And if you miss one day, it goes back to zero. That has proven to be very powerful with platforms like Duolingo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> My housemate had like a 300 day streak with Spanish. Somehow he can't speak Spanish for shit still, but <laughs> he was adamant on not losing the, the streak. I've got a good friend. He's got a gym streak. And even if he goes and he's all swollen and I'm to I've told him like the body needs to rest. No, he's not going to break the streak of going to the gym. So I guess it's pretty good for habit formation. Definitely with you on the gamification. And again, my background in entertainment, in hip hop and music, fashion, definitely have influenced that. And I've looked at the success of things like Chain Guardians, and I think this play to earn, this learn to earn model is not going anywhere. And we definitely are with you on the gamification. Like, I see question as a new sort of social media, and I don't want to say too much, but just think of Quora. Think of Quora. Again, think of streaks like we, we, a lot of what you're saying is on par with what we're doing. Again, it's just time and it's just building and encoding that. It's like, okay, I want to create streaks, but then to actually implement that on the back end and then to keep track of it and then to be able to reward users for that's where more of the time constraint comes in. But that is a hundred percent what I see this going to is sort of social game flight platform where people can celebrate their data, talk about trending questions. Right. You talk about Twitter and, and I want question to eventually be like a Twitter in the sense of instead of just asking people questions, eventually we aggregate questions from people. And then we go today, this was some of the most interesting or trending questions that we have and using it as a kind of social barometer for what people are thinking like a Twitter. So definitely with you on those elements. I love when I'm interviewing people and uh, my random stream of consciousness actually stick to things that are actually in the roadmap that are happening. Makes me feel so smart. Like it, <laughs> it, it feeds the bull in me that we're very early and that we're on the right track. So the question team now is four team members. Are you guys hiring? Are you guys raising money? If there's anyone listening to this episode that is inspired by what you've shared, what would be the best way to contact you to collaborate in any form? Anybody who's interested in joining the movement in helping to liberate data, you can, of course, join the waitlist at qstn.us, question us. And then, of course, you can reach out on email, qstnus at gmail. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on Discord. We even have a YouTube channel. So all of our contact information is there. We're always looking for new graphic artists. We're always looking for new coders. We're looking for new data analysts. We're growing. We have luckily gotten to this point because of grant funding. We currently haven't taken any outside investment. I'm not opposed to it. I definitely just have a specific vision for this. And I know that investment brings other opinions to the table. And I just want to get this out unobstructed. And once I've gotten it out unobstructed and, and it lives, or I can see what I think is, is closer off, 
then I can go, okay, let's bring in other people. But I feel like until I've gotten it to this point where my kind of like music, but some just... I was about to say spoken <laughs> like a true artist. You do not mess with the creative process. You'll stay poor and burn the world if you have to. The creative process shall not be messed with. And even as you're building software, sometimes you have to take off the range, right? Sometimes you got to go, look, I can't be in a, I can't stay in a black hole. I have to open this up and get some feedback so that I don't keep going in a direction that's not accurate. So again, it's a balance game, but I also do know that we're early. There's no, I don't want to rush to get this to market. And there are things about it, just like a song that if I'm listening to a song and something makes me wince, it's not perfect yet. So I got to go back to the drawing board and, and, and we're very close. I've said this already, but your music is so good. Thank like I only discovered it like three hours ago, but you. I, I like it. Thank you. When I start, like the first song, I can't recall the name, but you're like floating on a pool. And... In a pool. Oh, of Lick, yes. am I a cyborg? Uh, probably. Yeah. Then it's by my side. Mm -hmm. Are you not a cyborg on your side? Just to give you some clarification. So there's two people within the body. Right now you're speaking to real Warren, who does the music and handles the fashion. And then we go into cyborg mode. And when we're in cyborg mode, we speak a little bit more staccato. We strictly use the third person point of view when we're speaking about ourselves. And we normally wear a cyborg hoodie and there's a, a different energy to us. Just so you know. I saw a cyborg interview or part of with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Exactly. That would be cyborg mode. That was quite impressive. I know that you're based in NYC, which... Makes me really curious about, I guess, like your upbringing. How do you think that living in such a large city as New York has influenced your artistic career and your crypto interests? I don't know if you would ascribe like libertarian bent to, to it, but. Definitely just diversity, like New York and especially where I was living for a bit in Queens is like one of the most diverse counties in America. So it's like. You just meet a lot of different people from different walks of life. And so you just have to learn to be open. And that openness has extended to my music, to how I represent myself, to how I try to present myself, and to even the tools that I'm willing to use and to adopt. And I think that, again, pivoting, versatility, and like transmutation are some of the key topics. And again, you always want to keep your core essence, but sometimes what you think you are it needs to be put to the test. And once it's been put to the test, you, you learn new things about that shape that you were crafting. And so New York is just one of those places where that you're constantly changing your definition and your scope of things because there are people from everywhere, all over the world. It's a beautiful place to be from. And again, because of that diversity of thought, we met people from all over the world, which is again, some of our classmates from school were the ones who put us into cryptocurrencies. Thank you again, the Anibal Serial who also does some of the legal at question for putting us into Ethereum back in 2016. But New York really just opened us up. We're always going to the MoMA Museum. If not the MoMA, then the Whitney, or the Guggenheim, or the New Museum, or we're in Central Park, or in Prospect Park. It's really a beautiful city. We're currently in Los Angeles, but we still miss New York. <laughs> this is saying in Australia, but probably applies. Uh, no matter where I go, I still call Australia home. I think there's something about a New Yorker that it doesn't really matter where they go. There's something in that city. And I think you've nailed it. It is 100% the people because when you go there, you realize it may not be in the infrastructure, it may not be the governance. Things can, you know, there's ups and downs for sure. 
a city has had better and worse times, depending when you look at it in history. But I think that blend of people definitely creates something very special. Now, I, you may not have an answer for this. I don't think I do. But acknowledging that the world is a very large place and that crypto is drawing people from everywhere. Can you think of like any frameworks or practices or ways to like, I guess, encourage that diversity of thought or curiosity if someone is listening to this in a small town, I don't know, in Eastern Europe? Thankfully, A, we have the internet. A lot of people have questions and I'm like, why ask me? Ask the internet. So I think really do not sleep on the internet. We have, at least for us, we went on national television as a cyborg from the future from a story that started in our bedroom. And it's not a story, it's actually our, our story, but a story that started in our bedroom. And by reaching out on the internet, like we've been able to even coordinate this interview and a bunch of other things. And it's really just don't sleep on the power of the internet and relativity is everything. So we were in um, Berlin last year. We went to London. We went to Portugal for the NearCon event. And so getting that context is good. Getting frame of reference. Right. Like, and, and if you can't leave your country, if you can't leave where you're from, go out to the park, just meet people, just network. You don't know what you don't know. So it's very powerful, right? Just, just stay open. That's really what it's about. It's about stay open. Yes. We all have preconceived notions. We all think we know it all. And it's about trying to remove that to allow the new discoveries to be made. It's when the new discovery gets made right now in our life. We're in a space where we're, we're 27. There are things that we think we know, things that we're still learning. But right now, a lot of the beauty in our life is coming from when we put ourselves in those new situations, right? Let's go make ourselves uncomfortable. Let's actually go out and do that. And again, you don't always get patted on the back for doing that, but that's weird. That's where the excitement comes from is that newness. And so just being open, really. There's something very curious about life that even bad experiences in hindsight, you can laugh about and hopefully learn something from. That's why I can 100% sympathize with you. I migrated to Australia when I was 18. I grew up in Venezuela. And after so long there, I feel like I need to keep traveling to keep exposing myself to new cultures, to new traditions. I'm in Mexico now. And yeah, it's, it feels good to challenge all your beliefs and just to learn from different cultures. Look, I can tell you, by the way, side note, Mexico is about a thousand times better than anything you've ever heard about it overseas. Like it is safe. It is affordable. The food is delicious. There is so much history. The people are very welcoming and friendly. I've noticed this fascinating exchange between people where the locals know at least basic English for tourists, but there's something about the people that come to Mexico, especially as uh, digital nomads where they try to learn like basic Spanish. So it's like a beautiful meeting on the minds. And I think it captures some of that openness that once again, you don't have to get on a plane and travel. And some people can't at the moment, but it's about trying to embracing that and embedding it on your everyday life. Also with the internet, I think, hopefully this is not controversial, but at least the origins of the internet, they've got a very strong overlap with American ethos of openness, freedom, anyone can go in there, anyone can discuss, anyone can start a business. It is certainly different from the Chinese version of the internet and soon the Russian version of the internet. And I guess that that is what inspires a lot of the libertarian and the cypherpunks and, and, and the crypto movement. It's the battle for keeping it open. Also, 
just as a side. You have to go. I have class in a minute. Oh, no. Yeah, I, I'm in an incubator. Okay. Mm-hmm. No worries. Oren, thanks so much for your time. Is there anything you want to plug in the last minute? No, just again, keep being yourself. Learn about blockchain. Any way that you can get in the space, I say do it. I think that blockchain is here to revolutionize. It's much like the internet in the 90s. There's going to be this gold rush. And I think now is the time to get in it. You're not too late. It doesn't matter what the price of Bitcoin is. Again, do your own research. I'm not a financial investor, but there's a lot to offer. And I think you've just got to figure out where in this space connects to you and is applicable to your life. And hopefully question it can eventually be that starting point to get people into blockchain and into crypto. Beautiful place to wrap it up.